The following podcast contains general advice only and does not take into account your individual circumstances. Listeners should speak to an accountant or financial advisor before making any investment decision. Yes, hello everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. My name is Dion and this is, we're up to episode 11, Misery Mouse. Thank you for tuning in this week. Thank you for tuning in every week, to be honest with you. If you have a question for the show, as I usually do mention, you can email marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com, but we're going to get right into it this week and talk a little bit about some of the economic indicators that have been in the news and talk about capital raisings, talk about an important mouse, not just any mouse, Mickey Mouse, of course. And yeah, let's just jump into it. So the ASX 200 was up this week. It was up 2.8% over in the US. They did also have a pretty good week. They were up 3.4%. Oh, sorry, the S&P 500 was up 3.4%. And the NASDAQ, the tech-heavy NASDAQ was up 6%. So a, a really good week there for the NASDAQ. And as the as those sort of index performances suggest, it was it was quite a positive week overall for both the Australian and US markets. But as I kind of alluded to at the start of the podcast, that continues there continues to be some bleak economic indicators that sit in the background of all this market performance as of late. You know, one of the most covered releases here domestically was actually the release of the statement on monetary policy, which was from the Reserve Bank of Australia, which sounds super exciting, doesn't it? No, it's a, <laughs> there's actually some really important stuff in it that I wanted to talk about and, and I've highlighted those. And you might have even heard some of these mentioned during the week in uh, various other news outlets or podcasts. So this is taken from the RBA's website and this is the statement itself or part of the statement itself. Quote, in Australia, output is expected to contract significantly over the first half of 2020, mostly in the June quarter. While the exact size of the contraction is still uncertain, a decline in GDP of around 10% from the peak to trough is expected. Now, the RBA also expects unemployment to peak at around 10% as well. So that's basically their, well, that's their baseline scenario of of where they see unemployment peaking. A few other pointers that I took from the statement on monetary policy, although this isn't exactly new news, so to speak, uh, but I don't actually think I've mentioned it in previous episodes, but the RBA does expect that the cash rate will remain at its current level of 0.25%, which is the lowest it's ever been. So they they, they believe it's, it's going to stay at that for some years to come, which is, I guess, some indication on on, on your mortgages out there. This does appear to be, you know, pretty much the prevailing census, consensus, I guess, on uh, on the cash rate amongst economic commentators across the board, from what I've seen as well. The RBA also releases commentary at the same time around international economic conditions, which is also worth reading, I think. And a few pointers I took from this. So they pointed out the fact, which you know seems obvious, of course, but it, it's interesting to look into the. A deeper dive, but they point out that the fact that there's a greater risk with something like COVID-19 in terms of what it poses to, say, emerging or developing nations versus a country like Australia. Now, they've included a graph 
that shows just the number of hospital beds and medical doctors that are available in some of these emerging markets, like big emerging markets per 10,000 people like of their population. So when you've got countries like Brazil and Mexico and Turkey, they have closer to around 20-ish hospital beds per 10,000 people. And they've got the same rate of, of doctors about per 10,000 people. So very low, very low amounts of beds and, and doctors in some of those countries. The RBA also touched on the recovery period that China is currently going through as it starts to come out of lockdown, not fully in all parts of the country, but it, it is starting to come out of lockdown. And one good in indicator to sort of measure this in terms of looking at, you know, how China's moving, moving out of this and are they recovering is, is actually looking at the amount of coal that's being consumed by power plants in the country. So that gives you, an, I guess, a, an indicator on economic activity and, and sort of output in China. Every year in China, you see this indicator of coal consumption actually fall around the sort of February period because that, that coincides with Chinese New Year and, and people take you know, time off, you know, it's holiday time and, 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 you know, generally it does actually just then pick up quite quickly post Chinese New Year when people sort of return to work and, and you know, things like factories are, are running back at capacity. In regards to coal consumption, it, it has actually recovered since that sort of February, March period, you know, due to COVID-19, but it, it is not though at levels comparable to where it was in 2019, 2018 in the same period but the RBA sort of points out why this is the case. Quote, widespread workforce shortages, you know, pointing out the fact that many migrant workers are yet to return to urban areas. Continued lockdown in some cities across China and weak recovery in demand. Now, that last point is actually important as production levels won't normalize fully, even if China is completely out of the lockdown, so to speak until demand normalizes as well, especially from you know, international demand. Also related, if you go to the Bloomberg, it's Twitter account's called Bloomberg Opinion. It's different just to the normal Bloomberg one. And they, they posted a, like a time-lapse graphic showing pollution levels in China and, and showing how it's actually started to pick up from where they were across January, February. Anyway, I found that interesting in terms of, especially from the point of view of how China's sort of moving out of the lockdown period almost straight off the back of last week's podcast where i concluded the podcast with a bit of a segment uh, aimed at newer investors on how to actually buy shares and, and things like this well asic this week which is the australian securities and investment commission actually released a report and they, they sort of had a very concerning tone to the to the uh to the report but they they're showing the spike in in dormant or or new trading accounts in the stock market in the ASX since around mid-Feb, mid-Feb, sorry. And so there's definitely a lot more trading going on and investing as, as you can imagine as people are getting interested and we talked about that last week. What was funny, well, I shouldn't say funny because people, <laughs> this is people actually losing money, but I'll backtrack that. So what's concerning is data shows that retail investors are pretty bad at picking the right time to enter and actually make money on stocks. Now, I'll caveat this and say this is regarding making money across you know short periods, like a couple of days or something like this. And that that's not what something that's not something I do personally. I don't attempt to sort of day trade or you know, and I'm not going to assume that the people, you know, especially newcomers or or some of the people that are coming back after a long time 
not investing. I'm not going to assume that these people are, are day trading um, and they're trying to make quick, easy profits or anything in this. I'm sure many of them are actually buying for the long term and, and don't really care about the short term volatility. But this report is, is sort of showing how they're potentially bad. Well, not potentially, they are bad at actually picking the, the right time to actually enter in on a stock. So the data from ASIC shows net buying, so net buying of, of stocks or, or selling, it could be selling, versus what the next day percentage price change in stocks have been. And they've, they've looked at a period from the 24th of February to the 3rd of April. So, so what's, what it's measuring, to put it simply, is you know, were people net buyers or sellers of stocks and then what happened the day after that? And this is from the report... Quote, for more than two-thirds of the days on which retail investors were net buyers, their share prices declined over the next day. For more than half of the days on which retail investors were net sellers, their share prices increased over the next day. If all retail investors held their positions for only one day, total losses would have amounted to over $230 million. And they continue, while markets generally recover over the long run, and tend to grow with economic fundamentals, short-term trading and poor market timing can be a major risk for investors in volatile markets. So yes, a very, very, very concerned ASIC there on the, the risks that potentially young or new or maybe inexperienced investors are making in the market at the moment. In terms of market performance this week and in terms of some of the biggest movers, I think Afterpay is worth mentioning that they're up about 37% this week, which is crazy again. And this has come off the back of that move from Chinese company Tencent, which I mentioned in last week's show, taking out a 5% stake in the company. Another company which has an extremely similar name, but not a similar business at all, is Pushpay, which jumped actually around 50% this week. Uh, this week. And so Pushpay is actually a really interesting company. They were started in New Zealand and they're actually listed here on our stock exchange, but they're also listed on the New Zealand stock exchange. Now Pushpay, they, they effectively, to sum it up, they provided like a digital platform and digital app tools for churches. So they're, they're focused on, I think as I read it, faith tech. <laughs> and they basically give tools through their service for churches to set up things such as you know, the ability to give donations digitally, which is, you know, of course, as you can imagine, that's that's pretty good at the moment because it, re you know, removes the need for physical cash. And churches can also use their tools and the, and the app to actually set up community announcements to their to their congregation and stream ser sermons live as well. So they can do like live sermons through their application, which I'm sure, again, I'm sure that's that's really good right now with all the lockdowns. And they also offer like data analytics for these churches to sort of understand their donations that are coming through and, you know, how often they're coming and from who and patterns in that. And they have a lot of customers in the US, so especially in states like Texas and California and Florida and Tennessee. It's, it's really cool. It's not really a company that I've been too familiar with. And it's, it's cool actually learning about companies like this because, you know, all you ever hear about really is about the big guys like BHP and CBA, et cetera, et cetera. And, but there are some really exciting and sort of innovative companies out there that even on our exchange. Anyway, just full, full disclosure, I don't actually own shares in this company. I've never actually owned shares in this company either in the past. I just thought their business was 
quite interesting and wanted to share why their jump was or why they jumped so significantly like 50% in one week. So th- this has basically come off the back. They released their annual report, which had some really, really, really good signs of, of growth and guidance on and you know guidance on the continued growth of their business. So they had revenue that was up, they had profit for tax, which was up, which is important because they're actually at a loss in the previous annual reporting. Their margin is, is really high, so their, their gross profit margin is uh, 65% now, and they've managed to actually bring up 40, uh, big, uh, an increase in 42% of new customer signups. So that's a company that's obviously doing well, but they're, they're, they're really obviously benefiting from the current climate in the fact that they might actually see those continued growth just due to the fact that, you know, we, we don't want to, we don't want to be dealing with physical cash handling and, and people a bit more conscious about doing stuff like that and, and the fact that you can actually do live streams as opposed to actually physically attending the church. You know, all that really plays into the, the, the current COVID-19 climate. I almost forgot to touch on something which I always hammer on every week, which is US unemployment. And the official data was actually in on the US unemployment rate this week and it's jumped to 14.7%. Remember, I mentioned, I'm pretty sure I did mention last week that pre-COVID-19, that unemployment rate was actually 3.5%. And so now it's jumped up to 147 which is worse than what the US experienced during the Great Depression in the 1930s. And of course, we always look at new unemployment claims. And over the previous week in the US, that was 3.2 million. The worst week, which was about five weeks ago... Five, maybe six weeks ago, that's where 6.8 Americans filed for unemployment in a single week, which is you know, the biggest amount ever in, since they've actually started recording that specific statistic. And let's quickly talk about the mouse and not just any mouse, of course, Mickey Mouse. It's a, it's a, rough, it's a rough time to be running Disney or, or I guess even to be a shareholder, I suppose, as well. They reported their quarterly earnings and to the market this week and their operating income was down 58%, which is massive. So they've had a they've had a horrible quarter. And so that operating income refers to a company's gross income after they take into account, you know, after they've subtracted operating expenses, so things like wages for their staff and, and running the actual, say, theme parks and things like that. So once they've taken that off, that's what their operating income is. Yeah, that's that's a huge drop. But if you pause and think about what it is exactly that Disney does as a company overall, and then think about what COVID nineteen is severely impacting, it's it's almost like a perfect storm for them. You know, on one hand, they they effectively own the movie industry, not not entirely, but you know, they've they're they're Disney, so they've got themselves, and they've got Pixar, and they've got Marvel, and they've got Star Wars, and right now, obviously, cinemas are closed. And some of their big titles and big titles across the board are just being pushed into, you know, later this year or even next year to come out instead. And then they've got their theme parks, which is, you know, such a massive part of, of their business. And they're, they've been closed you know, globally, effectively. And then they actually, which I kind of forgot about, they, they own their own, they have their own cruise line, which, you know, they're not going anywhere at the moment. So they've suspended guidance 
And I spoke about guidance before when I was talking about that push pay company, but effectively guidance is what a company gives to shareholders as an indication of where they see the company's financials over the coming year or something like this. So they might say, oh, we expect you know, profit to lift by this much. We expect customers to grow by this much, blah, 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 blah. So it starts to give people who are trying to value their company or see where it's going, I guess, a bit of an indication of what the the next few months or what the next year looks like for that company. So Disney are basically scrapped doing that for this year, which makes sense because, you know, there is such uncharted waters at the moment for, you know, a lot of the world, let alone Disney. And they've had to just suspend their dividend as well, which makes sense. The only bright spot for a company like Disney right now is Disney Plus, which they've continued to add more subscribers to, especially over the last few months. Well, let's transition out of that and we'll dive into a topic for this week, which is capital raisings and kind of explain what they are and what they mean and some of the stuff that's been happening with them, especially over the last few months. So capital raising, we're talking about equity capital raising and it's kind of potentially sounds like a bit of a confusing term, but it's actually relatively easy to get your head around when you think about it. So when one way for a company to get access to more capital for their business, aside from actually borrowing money and actually say taking out a loan from from a bank, so to speak, is that they can actually issue additional shares in the company. So in that way, it can be actually better than taking on debt because debt, it's not like they have, with debt, sorry, they, they have to have you know a loan that they've got to repay back over a certain period of time and and all that stuff. But instead, when there are more shares, I guess the way that they pay that back is, you know, in the form of dividends and, and stock, you know, share price performance and all that kind of stuff. So it's not like having a an actual loan liability sitting there against against the balance sheet. Now the downside of to an investor when it comes to a capital raising is that there are more shares issued in the company that you're already invested in, which means that there's a effectively a dilution in the in the value of your shares and your shares can drop in value, at least maybe for the short term. So if the company, for example, is worth $100 today and there are four shares in that company, then they're worth $25 each, right? But if the company issues one extra share tomorrow, well, the company's still worth $100. That didn't change, but now the shares each are worth $20. So rules actually surrounding capital raisings, have they've actually changed recently since basically since the pandemic really started and a lot of that's aimed at allowing companies to raise a bit more money than they normally are allowed to especially under the circumstances i'm taking this quote from wa today article which was by sarah dankett and it says quote the key changes in the new interim rules are increasing the amount of capital a company can raise in a single placement from 15% of its current equity base to 25% and lifting the cap on entitlement offers so that they're no longer restricted to one new share for each share owned. Now that last part that in that quote is referring to the fact that they've allowed two for one in these equity capital raisings for shareholders, meaning companies can do a two for one share offer where previously it was restricted to one for one. So normally under normal circumstances, usually the offer is uh, for every one share that you have, you can buy one. But now 
So for example, in some of them, they are doing two for one. I guess giving, giving you an example from my personal portfolio is two very different companies doing capital raisings, but doing it in very different predicaments. So one is Webjet, which I've mentioned on the podcast before, and they've done a capital raising, but that's very much a capital raising in let's hope we stay alive through this period kind of capital raising. And that's, that's what they've done. The other that's actually only just this week actually announced theirs is a sort of hardware distributor or tech hardware and software distributor Dicker Data. And they've announced a capital raising, but they've actually seen no material change to their overall sales and earnings due to COVID-19. So they're not in the same boat as a Webjet where their business has basically almost collapsed because of it. If anything, a company like Dicker Data has actually benefited from you know, a shift to working from home and, and all that kind of thing. So their capital raising is actually to fund the construction of a new distribution center. The reason I'm giving that example is because it's not it's not like companies just only do a capital raising because they're about to die or anything like this. It's, it's actually a way for them to raise money for expansion and growth and acquisition and, and things like that. But of course, at the moment, a lot of the capital raising going on is actually to sh- sort of shore up the books and, and in, ensure that they can actually stay afloat. Now, how it works, you know, technically works as a shareholder is if you're a shareholder in a company, you get communication usually in the form of a letter or if you've fully subscribed to digital communication, you might get that in an email, but you'll get a notice on how to actually take that up. So generally speaking, for a one-for-one offer, they'll say, look, for every one share you own, you can apply for one more and they'll generally detail that because they know who you are and they know how many shares you have. So they might say, all right, you've got 100 shares, therefore you can apply for 100 more or up to 100 more. You don't have to, I guess. Sometimes they set minimums, so you have to at least apply for $1,000 worth of shares or something like that. And I probably didn't point this out, but capital raisings are also usually done at a discount to the current share price. There's generally like an incentive in there to do this because you'll get it slightly at a discount. And I, and I guess as a, especially as a retail investor, if you're really confident and really happy with your company that, that's doing a capital raising and you're happy to participate in that, then it's one, it's, it's, it's a good way to actually you know, increase your investment in that company because you're not, you're not going to have to go through a stockbroking platform like the ones we talked about last where you can actually pay brokerage fees to actually uh, get, those, get those new shares. Now, I'll sort of end this and, and highlight the fact that there has actually been a fair bit of media commentary criticizing those temporary rules that I mentioned at the top of this segment and how they've changed regarding capital raisings. And I guess the, the theme is that they are... I guess the criticism comes from the fact that they're shafting sort of your average Joe retail investors with the dilution and, you know, favoring institutional institutional players and favoring, you know, investment banks or those who are actually copying the fees or taking on the, the fee revenue for actually doing those capital raisings. Probably where I saw the criticism aimed at most was uh, companies like Cochlear and well, Next DC was quite a big one that they did and which was a strange one in the sense that because it was so big, but they, they're also not actually, at least from what I've seen, experiencing any material impact either because of COVID-19, just due to the nature of their business. All right, well, hopefully the sort of capital raising 
you know, makes a bit more sense now. If you own shares in companies in the Australian Stock Exchange, maybe perhaps your company has already done a capital raising. There's been, I think, I think that I know there's at least over 70 or around 70 in the ASX 200 that have, that have done capital raisings as of late. We spoke about last week, of course, the banks. So NAB on one hand announced that they will pay a dividend, but they're actually also going to do a capital raising. So, which sounds a bit strange that they're letting money go out the door one way and trying to raise money on the other side. But then companies like ANZ and Westpac have, have decided not to pay a dividend, but not to do the capital raising. Well, that's it for the week. You know, time actually flew by recording this podcast this time. I hope you enjoyed the podcast as always and found some of that stuff interesting. Hopefully you didn't turn it off as soon as I said Reserve Bank monetary statement as, yeah, what well, to be fair, if you did turn it off, I mean, I don't blame you. Have a great rest of the week. Have a great Mother's Day, of course, and stay safe. My name is Dion and this is the Market Pulse Podcast.